Arjun Makajani, welcome to the new school. Well, thank you so much, Michael. Uh, you're one of the more interesting human beings I've met recently, and I meet my fair share of interesting human beings. You're the president of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Research, www.ieer.org, and the author of many books, articles, and reports on energy, nuclear weapons, and environmental issues. You've testified before Congress, you've been on the national media and national public radio, written for the Washington Post, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientist Technology Review, and other publications. And you have a PhD from our very own Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Sciences at the University of California, Berkeley, where you specialized in nuclear fusion. And uh, we're here to talk today about a book of yours and a pamphlet of yours. Uh, the book is called Carbon-Free and Nuclear-Free, A Roadmap for U.S. Energy Policy. And the pamphlet is called Ecology and Genetics, An Essay on the Nature of Life and the Problem of Genetic Engineering. So we have a lot to cover in an yes. hour. <laughs> and there's a connection between these and two And there things. is a connection. <laughs> uh, but I'd like to start uh, at the end of August uh, 2011 with uh, a question. Uh, what are the three principal uh, legacies of Fukushima? Well, you know, no one had imagined it would seem an accident that would go on, a nuclear power accident that would go on for months. It started in March, and the emissions are still going on. The reactors are still not under control, what, which we would call a cold shutdown, which means temperature less than the boiling point of water. It hasn't been achieved yet. The infrastructure for handling all of this hot radioactive stuff the cranes, specifically, have been blown apart in, in three buildings. And you look at that and say, could we have imagined it? And to my own surprise, actually, and I only revisited this carefully after Fukushima, that we could have and should have imagined it. So I'm kind of blaming myself, too, for not being alert enough. In Chernobyl in 1986, uh, some of the burning graphite, when it was blown out of the reactor number four, it fell on the roof of reactor number three, which had tar on it, and reactor number three caught fire. And, or, or the roof caught fire of the turbine building. And so there was a potential for multiple reactor accidents then, which did not happen, but we didn't say, ooh, maybe we ought to pay attention to this. I think the biggest message that's staring me in the face is the refusal to learn lessons. There were certain things in Three Mile Island, a hydrogen explosion, which arose from the reaction of zirconium with steam. And we didn't revisit the question of, should we be having zirconium fuel rods and reactors? There was a question of, are we regulating these things? stringently enough, and the NRC's Nuclear Regulatory Commission's own staff had said, you need better regulations. Not only that, you shouldn't think that some accidents are so improbable that we need not worry about them. We ought to get rid of that mindset. And we haven't yet. That's My other reflection is, 
And this was very clear after Chernobyl. You didn't have to know anything much. Is that with nuclear reactors and nuclear technology is different than, say, a natural gas explosion. It happened in Texas City, Texas. Lots of people died in 46. But with normal accidents, you know, a train going off the tracks, a natural gas explosion, there's a lot of tragedy, a lot of damage, and you can normally pick up the pieces and go on. With a nuclear accident, such as Fukushima and Chernobyl, you can't pick up the pieces and go on because things, the land is contaminated for generations. You've got essentially a nuclear waste dump right in a seismic area at the ocean. You can't walk away from it, and yet you can't see how you're going to empty it. Uh, you're, it's, it's sort of like some chemicals, like the dioxins and the PCBs, a very long-lasting, once you put it in the environment, it's, you, you can't get rid of it. And we're enjoying the benefits and we're burdening our children. And so in my mind, it sharpens the question of, should we be making fission products and plutonium just to boil water? That even if it were cheap, which it is not, should we be doing this? And I think not. So those are the two sort of, or three big picture things that. In this fabulous book, Carbon Free and Nuclear Free, A Roadmap for U.S. Energy Policy, which is a very technical book, but for anybody who can read Scientific American, you can understand it. I hope so. And, and what you did was you took seriously uh, what it would take uh, to transition the United States by 2050 to a completely carbon-free and nuclear-free future. Sure. Now, I have to say, before I read this book, I was skeptical about that because I knew lots of sort of hippie and semi-hippie friends who had that vision, but I hadn't seen anybody really rigorously and in a granular way take the whole U.S. energy structure as it is and ask, how could we phase out of you know, oil, nuclear, and all the rest, and how, how could we do this? And to my um, surprise, actually, my delight, but my surprise, you really created a map for doing that. So um, I'd like to ask you, uh, I'm sure this is something you do regularly, but if we started with the headlines, um, what are the headlines about how we move from where we are to a carbon-free, nuclear-free future? Well, we, we should put certain, certain prominent people have said things that ought not to be said by prominent people, like James Lovelock. You know, everybody should have contributed as much to our thinking and our understanding as he has. Gaia theory. Mm -hmm. I'm a total admirer of what James Lovelock has done. But he also said, solar energy and wind energy are too small. They can't solve the problem. You need nuclear energy. Well, it just happens to be not true. And I thought that so, was, so the first, was the case. The, yeah. The In first, other words, that's, that's kind of not just James Lovelock. That's a not uncommon vision that wind and solar 
just aren't going to solve the problem. Yes. And, and many leading environmentalists, by the way, not, uh, uh, you know, uh, what's his name from the World Resources Institute, the former head of the world, uh, Gus Spath. Gus Spath. Uh, many of the environmentalists who've endorsed nuclear have endorsed it because they regard it as essential to solving the climate problem. So, so, you know, five years ago, when my friend and mentor, and wonderful, practical visionary Dave Freeman said we should get rid of fossil fuels and, and nuclear, I started as an agnostic. I didn't... Right know that it could be done, and I didn't know that it couldn't be done. Yeah. I felt the technologies were there, but probably too expensive and probably too far out. But right. I agreed to take a look, right. and a, a truly objective look in the best sense. And within a year, I felt that we are living in the middle of a technological revolution. Hmm. 20 years ago, it would not have been possible to say with confidence as that I do today, at least it is possible for me to say it with confidence, that we can get rid of fossil fuels and nuclear energy at reasonable cost. And that's the most important criterion. Because anybody can say, well, you know, build a bunch of batteries and store, store solar energy in it and you're good to go. But that's not a sensible answer. It's a, maybe a piece of the answer, but it's not a sensible answer because it's too costly. And once I became I became convinced that we are living in the middle of a technological revolution. Lead-acid batteries are not good to go <laughs> in a fully renewable system. Lithium-ion batteries are a factor of four in cost away. Only a factor of four. And a lot of that is just mass manufacturing, technological refinements. And once I saw these pieces, the solar energy, solar photovoltaics cost for central station, large-scale photovoltaics was eight, nine dollars a watt in 2005. Today it is three, maybe 350 a watt. Mm -hmm. Very dramatic changes, and the speed of the changes is fantastic. Once I looked at that, I felt, yes, if you join these various technologies in a sensible way and if you have bold and sensible public policies, we can get there in 40 years. That's what I thought four years ago. Today, think, uh, today I think we can, the electricity system, we can get there in 25 years. Mm -hmm. Because I think things are happening faster. I tend to be a little bit on the cautious side mm -hmm. because I don't like to be told I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. And so I tend, <laughs> I tend to be cautious. Nobody's going to accuse me of being wrong if I said it's going to take longer than what it actually took. So you have um, one graph in your book, uh, a possible future U.S. electric grid configuration without coal or nuclear power in 2050. You have solar photovoltaics, all scales, 35%. Uh, you have compressed air storage as a standby, 5%. Wind energy, large scale, 10 to 15%. Hydropower and pump storage, 5%. Solar thermal central station, 5 to 10%. Biomass geothermal wave energy, 25%. Combined heat and power, 10%. And ultra capacitors, I don't even know what those are. V2G. Storage. storage. Energy storage. Uh, uh, as a contributor. So you've kind of thought through 
what each kind of power would contribute to this. Yeah, and that's not a, it's not a prediction. Right. What it's this, just one What this model. is is a feasibility study. Right. Can we do it with technologies that with things that we know how to make? Right. Where the, which, which are not in the lab and the test right. tube stage, uh, which are out there in the real world and may need some technological refinement. Right. But, but we know how to make them, and most of the things are already economical. Um, so. As things will actually evolve, I think the set of technologies that we will have will be better than the ones that are described because I'm only using technologies it's that available. are within the 10-year time frame, not mm -hmm. a 40-year time frame. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm convinced of that. Mm -hmm. But uh, that chart shows that if you combine uh, certain generation sources in a certain way, and you put them together with electric cars, which are not actually shown there, uh, but which are discussed in the book, mm -hmm. that you, you don't have to worry about what happens when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. So these are the three mm -hmm. big questions with renewables are, do you have enough? And the answer to that is yes. Mm -hmm. Is wind energy enough more than all the oil in all the OPEC countries put together mm -hmm. just in the United States? Mm -hmm. Solar energy is bigger than that. Uh, the second question is cost. And I think wind energy is already cheaper than nuclear today, mm -hmm. even with storage. Mm -hmm. You do compressed air energy storage, wind energy will cost you about 10, 11, 12 cents. Mm -hmm. And nuclear starts at 12 cents and goes up from there, there if you're lucky. Plus, does that include the insurance cost for nuclear? Which is the, Nobody can include the insurance. Because they, you look at Fukushima yeah. right. and you know that we're insured in right. the United States to the grand royal sum of $12.6 billion. Right. And beyond that, you're at the mercy of Washington. Right. If Congress will appropriate money to make people whole right. to the extent that you can make right. them whole with money, then you could get compensated. Right. But today, I mean, today it's much worse than it right. was a year ago. I mean, you're looking at extensive damage from a hurricane. Right. And there are people in Congress who are saying, well, Hmm, maybe we won't make it whole unless we cut the budget someplace else yeah. and make somebody else, you know, take it away from somebody else. We're not going to, we're not going to help uh, people who are hurt in a hurricane. Now, just uh, in, your, in the book... You can't cost that. You can't cost Fukushima. Right. In the book, you have some lovely maps where you show, let's, let's posit that solar and wind are two critical resources. But the issue is, as you show in the book, that where you have all the solar and where you have all the wind is different from the population center. Yeah, the wind especially. Especially the wind. Yes. Uh, you're right. The, the solar, you, and you, you talk about you can do a lot of rooftop work, and especially I was fascinated, you can do a lot of parking lots, uh, mm -hmm. solar roofs yeah. and parking lots, as a, but especially the wind. But also, to some degree, I think the large solar... Yes. Farms yes. would be in the southwest and so yes. on. So different from the population area. So then you have the issue of how much loss there is and how much cost there is for getting the centralized solar and wind energy sources as opposed to the distributed ones, which you also endorse, but to getting them to the population centers. Is that right? The, um, actually, the, one of the misconceptions is about transmission costs right. and losses. Right. Um, 
If you look at your electricity bill, I, I haven't mm -hmm. looked at a California bill recently, but when I look at my electricity bill, the distribution costs, your local wires, are much more expensive than the transmission okay. wires, even though they are much more extensive, mm -hmm. because um, the transmission towers transmit an enormous amount of energy at very high voltage in, you know, four pieces of the wire. Mm -hmm. And uh, distribution is much more capital intensive because wires transmit a small amount of energy mm -hmm. and have lots, lots of losses. If you have high voltage DC transmission, you can actually transmit thousands of miles with minimal losses. On the order of 10% or so, or less? Less than 10%. Less than 10%. And, and so you can think, for instance, Europe, which is solar energy poor, of having mm, the Sahara be uh, a source of solar thermal uh -huh. and solar PV power with undersea cables, and this would be perfectly good. There are some real disadvantages to centralized systems, but I think in Terrorism my mind... Terrorism is one. Yes, in my mind, there's security. Security, security vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. You don't want a really centralized system. So distributed systems are much better if you get knocked out in a hurricane and you have microgrids that you can isolate, then you're not actually knocking out millions of people at the same time as happened in 2003. But you propose an yeah. integrated system yes, of centralized and, yes. and decentralized distributed. But dif much more distributed and much less centralized. Right. This is because the centralized system, it's sort of backwards right. from what we have. The centralized system would serve as the kind of backup mm -hmm. to the local system. So that if your local system fails, which it would fail more often probably than a centralized system mm -hmm. would, the centralized system will be there for you. Um, today, we don't have a local system to supply us when mm -hmm. we, and even the local system, the way they are, your solar rooftop PV, the way it's connected to the utility, it doesn't work if the utility system is down, your solar PV is also down, which is um, not a very good way to do it, but that's the way. It's initial stages, mm -hmm. so understandable. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of replacing oil, you talk, if I've got it right, you talk about a biomass, uh, bi what's the right word? Am I saying it right? Yeah. Biomass as a, uh, and you talk, I, there's one place in there where you have a lovely picture of water hyacinths and mm -hmm. uh, the huge amount of biomass that can be harvested per acre or whatever from water hyacinths. Is that, do I have that right? Yeah, now, you know, biomass is not my preferred yeah, approach to right. solving energy problems. Right. First of all, there are really bad ways to do biomass, right. and to be sure, we're doing them. Right. And uh, corn, corn, corn to ethanol, yeah. Yeah. palm oil to diesel, right. they're really, really bad. They don't yeah. save you from carbon dioxide, and they don't, you know. And they, they starve poor they, people. They, they starve poor people, they raise the prices of food. So I often tell people, you know, before Washington got involved, we used to have three energy problems. Right. We had the climate problem, and we had the oil security problem, and we had the plutonium uh, nuclear power problem, and then Washington got involved, and now we got a food energy problem, right. too, because mm -hmm. of corn death and all. And so it's just as well that Washington is staying out of this, and California is in the lead. I like mm -hmm. that. The um, California and Germany together will take us quite far mm -hmm. in the technological. Um, so I did two things in my book. I said, what can I see that's feasible now with given technology? And I see, you know, we know ways to deal with biomass. And are there good ways of producing biomass? Mm -hmm. 
And the best way to produce biomass is to get win, 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 win by growing water hyacinths mm -hmm. or algae in wastewater. Mm -hmm. So you're sopping up all the nitrogen, you're preventing algal blooms. You actually sop up some toxins too that you can catch, mm -hmm. prevent them from going up, growing into the environment. NASA used to grow water hyacinths to meet, um, if I'm remembering right, uh, uh, heavy metal pollution discharge standards, which they were not able to meet from their photographic lab in the mm -hmm. 70s. They didn't know what to do with the water hyacinth, so they mm -hmm. stopped. Uh, and um, because the productivity is very great, yeah. and you, can, you can get 10,000 gallons an acre instead of mm -hmm. a few hundred gallons an acre. But even so, the land requirements are very great. Mm -hmm. I think to really solve the problem of say aircraft, which is the hardest energy problem mm -hmm. to solve. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we In should- In other words, non-petrochemical fuel for the aircraft. Yeah, so on, and non-biomass. Non so if you, if you try to solve some of our petroleum problems by putting biomass, the land area required is very large. Mm -hmm. Where are you gonna grow all these algae? You know, will the wastewater authorities allow it? And then mm -hmm. still, you're still burning stuff. So you still get your nitrogen mm -hmm. oxides mm -hmm. and you know, you still get ozone mm -hmm. pollution and so on. So long as you're burning stuff, you're gonna get that. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought, okay, aircraft, electric aircraft may, today I would say they're imaginable. When I wrote my book, they didn't seem to be mm -hmm. imaginable. Today mm -hmm. we've flown solos, solar mm -hmm. aircraft, right. as you know. Mm -hmm. uh, that example wasn't in front of me and I wasn't imaginative enough. Uh, but hydrogen mm -hmm. fuel, Hydrogen made from wind energy and solar energy mm -hmm. used in aircraft, definitely feasible. Really? Yes. For large aircraft? For large aircraft. The Soviets actually converted a passenger aircraft to, with hydrogen fuel. To a jet? Uh, to a jet. You can burn hydrogen in jet engines. Uh, actually, uh, internal combustion engines are somewhat more efficient with hydrogen. Hydrogen is more energy dense per unit mass, so is there's there less a, weight to is carry. There a is there a downside to using hydrogen for? Well, there's a downside to anything flammable. So, right. uh, of course, we see the downsides to jet fuel. Right. Whenever there's an accident, right. you see the horrendous flames, and you have the same downside with hydrogen. I think hydrogen actually probably less dangerous mm. than jet fuel, huh. because if you really commercialized hydrogen, you would put liquid cryogenic hydrogen at the top of the aircraft, uh -huh. not in the wings. Uh -huh. uh, you wouldn't have wing tanks. Mm -hmm. uh, at least that's how I've seen the concept. Mm -hmm. the, and if you have an accident, mm -hmm. hydrogen being very light, much lighter than air, mm -hmm. much less dense than air, and go being up. very cold, it would go up. And you don't get an aircraft necessarily engulfed in flames right. in the same way as you have with kerosene. Cool. Uh, the, the Hindenburg example is a kind of one that comes to everybody's mind. I discussed that a little bit. But I discovered to my surprise that the Hindenburg story is much more complicated and much less resolved, like a kind of a you know, true life crime that never gets, you know. It's, it's, it's not as well thought through and understood as you would imagine from reading a popular account, you know. The so in addition to air, airplanes, what is the 
logical role of biomass in the converted economy? Well, the logical role of biomass is that it's the fastest way out of uh, petroleum mm -hmm. that we know how to do. Mm -hmm. And a second logical role for biomass is if we want to reduce the use of coal rapidly mm -hmm. in existing coal-fired power plants as we are shutting them down, mm -hmm. because it'll take 15 or 20 years to get it done, mm -hmm. and I think we should get it done before 2030, mm -hmm. then you can coal-fire coal-fired power power plants mm -hmm. with biomass, so you can replace some of the coal. The other role for biomass, which is more speculative, but which may be more interesting and necessary, mm -hmm. is I think we're so far gone with the climate problem that we may need to remove some of the CO2. Now Hansen mm -hmm. talks about, mm -hmm. James Hansen, the famous climate scientist, talks about that. Um, I'm not sanguine that forestation is the right approached. Mm -hmm. It's very hard. The land questions are going to be very difficult. The equity questions for the poor are going to be very, very hard. So I think growing water hyacinths and um, generating electricity mm -hmm. and then uh, sequestering the carbon. Underground. Yeah, underground. Uh, this may be a good way to remove carbon from the atmosphere. And that's the main reason I support the development of carbon sequestration technology. What about um, biomass uh, to create uh, uh, green plastics and things like that? Yes. Now, petrochemicals are a very good question. I think, yeah. I think mm, yeah, if you, so long as we need petrochemicals, that's a good, mm -hmm. that, that's a very useful uh, source of, very, very but I mean, we're going, to need, we're going to need yeah. green chemistry, right? Yes, we are going green to chemistry need green is chemistry. Green chemistry is going to need a base. Yes. If the base isn't right. uh, petroleum products, it's got to be something. Yes. I mean, there's a mantra that I've found useful that uh, green materials, uh, green chemistry, and green energy are the three essentials for a sustainable uh, economy. And yeah. So I've always thought that biomass was the, the feedstock for the green chemicals. I agree with that. Okay. Yeah. No, I agree with that. And that's how I deal with right. uh, with the... Yeah, I was so much on the energy side right. of things that I wasn't mm -hmm. thinking of the feedstocks. Mm -hmm. But, of course, feedstocks are very important mm -hmm. use of petroleum. Mm -hmm. So going back to the, the current post-Fukushima situation, the Japanese are trying to move away from nuclear. The Germans are trying to move away from nuclear. In a phone conversation you and I had early on, you seem to say, if I had it right, that you thought nuclear was an energy source that was on life support and really wasn't going to continue to be developed. When you look at the real world right now, how do you analyze the post-Fukushima policy matrix with respect to nuclear power and energy? Well, it's very different in different countries. I, I think I probably was intended to talk about the United States. Right. Um, obviously, China is going ahead mm -hmm. with building a large number of nuclear power plants, as is mm -hmm. India, and I think the Russians, too. Mm -hmm. The French seem less, even though they get 75-80% mm -hmm. from nuclear, mm -hmm. they seem less sure now. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people in France mm -hmm. would take back that decision today. Mm -hmm. Not everybody, mm -hmm. but a lot would take back that decision. The Germans, of course, have decided and they were on that road already. What it has done, I think it has reinforced 
prior tendencies that existed. So the Italians were kind of hesitating about nuclear power and they thought, mm -hmm. well, for climate, maybe we'll get back into it. And they're out. The Swedes were kind of thinking, oh, because of carbon, we might get back into nuclear power. It's doubtful, I think, they will resume. Uh, the British are sitting on a fence, uh, even though they haven't announced kind of building nuclear reactor policy, it isn't going anywhere. I think in this country, the nuclear renaissance was pretty much dead mm -hmm. before. It never happened. Mm -hmm. There was kind of a hope of the nuclear establishment mm -hmm. in 2003, 4, 5, mm -hmm. and they all went to Wall Street and said, we're going to, you know, the climate thing is coming, there'll be a price on carbon, and it'll be economical, and fund new nuclear power plants. We have these nice, safe reactors. Generation three plus. And Wall Street said, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. And that's when they started going to Washington and saying, give us loan guarantees. Mm -hmm. the, the chairman, of, the CEO of General Electric, Jeffrey Immelt, who's part of President Obama's mm -hmm. advisors, he should tell Obama what he told the Financial Times in 2007. It's pretty close to an exact quote. He said, if I were the CEO of a utility, I would never do nuclear. And this mm -hmm. is a man whose company is selling nuclear. Mm -hmm. He said, I would do In gas fact, or wind. sold the Fukushima reactors. Right? This was well before yeah. Fukushima. Yeah. 2007, November. But aren't the Fukushima reactors from General Electric? I yeah. believe they are. Yeah. yeah, they are from General Electric. Well, they're General Electric design. Yeah. And boiling water reactors. And... He said I would do wind and gas. Of course, he's also selling gas turbines and wind turbines. So General Electric comes out ahead, and he wanted loan guarantee. He wasn't saying I won't, nuclear shouldn't happen. He was saying give me loan guarantees for nuclear. And even with loan guarantees, it isn't getting done. Mm -hmm. In 2005, Congress said you get a production tax credit, just like wind, and you'll, for the first few reactors, and you'll get $18.5 billion in loan guarantees. Mm -hmm. Well, they've managed to give $8.5 in loan guarantees, or $8 billion to Southern Company, mm -hmm. to reactors mm -hmm. in the South, in, in, in Georgia. Mm -hmm. And they can't seem to give away the other $10 billion. So Michael, tell me, now President Obama has proposed to expand the loan guarantees from $18.5 to $54.5 billion. So our nuclear energy policy is to expand the amount of money you can't give away from 10 billion to 44 billion. Wow. That's, that's the energy policy, uh, nuclear energy policy. It, no. So it isn't gonna go anywhere. Now, we first got introduced when our mutual friend Pete Myers uh, uh, told me when I was interested in an article on The Guardian on what are they called, thorium-based nuclear reactors, which the Chinese right. apparently are planning to stamp out like cupcakes, which at least in theory, can't melt down, and we're, according to this article in The Guardian, we're, we're uh, much safer and sort of the, the great uh, savior of uh, safe nuclear energy. So he suggested I call you, and uh, uh, we had a conversation, and I discovered uh, that you were rather persuasive that uh, there was less than met the eye in thorium-based nuclear reactors. Well, yeah, I mean, there are a whole variety of thorium proposals, yeah. and, and, and thorium is very interesting material. It's actually not a nuclear fuel at all, mm -hmm. uh, even though people talk about mm -hmm. thorium fuel. It's mm -hmm. not a fuel. Uh, 
it cannot sustain a chain reaction. You have to convert thorium to uranium-233, which is a fuel. And so you need some starter material. It turns out that starter material has to be plutonium or enriched uranium, and you're back in the same game. Whenever you have nuclear power, you're going to have fissile materials. Fissile materials means chain reactions. That's what sustains the reactor. Fissile materials also mean, in principle, you can make bombs with it. Now, can you make bombs with it the way it is in the reactor? No. You have to separate uranium-233. Uh, is it more difficult? Yes. But do terrorists care if they make, if they get high doses of radiation? No. Uh, would countries that don't have nuclear weapons today care if workers got high doses of radiation? Did the Soviets care? No. Uh, is the record that the Americans cared? I leave you to research that, and we'll talk about that another day. The, um, so I think whenever you're talking fission power, mm -hmm. fusion, separate issue, and I think that much better nuclear power source, if you could make it work. Um, every fission reactor has its own pluses and its own downsides. So the reactors we have today, which you're looking at, Fukushima, were promoted in the 50s as um, much safer than the alternatives. And one of the alternatives was graphite-moderated reactors. Now, graphite-moderated reactors, called pebble-bed reactors, are being promoted as much safer than light-water reactors. Uh, every reactor, so do liquid thorium reactors have some pluses in terms of safety? They do. Do they have some minuses? They do. Uh, we've got a small thorium reactor that was built in the 60s, never generated any. Tennessee Valley. In, in Oak Ridge. Oh, in Oak Ridge. In Tennessee. Yeah. Uh, no, it was an experimental reactor that had no generator mm -hmm. attached to it. It was just a reactor, experimental reactor, mm -hmm. pilot reactor. And it, it ran for a few years. Uh, some issues came up, but, but it ran reasonably well, you could say, for an experimental reactor. And today, 40 years after it was shut down, it still has not been decommissioned. Mm. Because the nuclear waste problem, management problem, is such a headache that this reactor that cost less than 10 million has a decommissioning estimate of more than $200 million mm. that never generated any electricity. Now, there are lots of technical issues. As you know, I haven't finished my research on, on this reactor. But thorium is a nastier material radiologically, even though it's less radioactive per gram than uranium. It's nastier radiologically. Um, gram for gram, it'll give you probably 100 times bigger dose to your bone if you breathe it than uranium. Mm. Uh, thorium proponents tend to forget that. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult material to handle. So there's a bunch of thorium whole, enthusiasts, yes. right, who, who uh, there's a whole culture of thorium enthusiasts, as I understand. Yeah, you, if you drop the U-R-E, it oh. might be more accurate. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, 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 the, so you have to ask, are these reactor proponents, what are they saving? Are they saving kind of a favorite technology and area of research? 
or are they saving us from climate? Any new reactor proposal other than light water reactors will take 10, 15, 20 years to perfect before you can set up the assembly lines to build them. And if you ask the climate scientists how much time you have, mm. if you haven't shut down the coal-fired power plants in 20, 25 years, you're done. So there are so many pieces we could pursue further on this. Uh, the, the, the closing piece on this before we go to ecology and genetics is that you did your dissertation, if I remember correctly, on nuclear fusion, or you specialized on nuclear fusion. And in our conversation over lunch, my understanding was that the bottom line is that uh, if, if fusion could be done safely and well, it would be a wonderful thing, but that the temperatures required are hotter than the sun, so it can't touch the walls of the, of right. the you know, container. Right. And, uh, and the costs and technological challenges remain enormous. Yeah. You're, you're trying to bottle the sun, basically, yeah. and, and generate electricity right. from, from, from that system. And, and I think we, for a very long time, made some fundamental mistakes in approaching fusion research. I think mm -hmm. uh, there should be a kind of 100 flowers bloom approach because mm -hmm. we don't know which approach is going to work. So the French are building this vastly expensive... Uh, no, it's not the French. Oh, it's it's the, the whole... It's everybody. Oh, okay. The Indians are contributing okay. 500 million. The France? Americans are... It's in, it's in France. So there was yeah. a big bureaucratic fight. Is it going to be in France? Is it going to be in Japan? Yeah. Everybody yeah. wanted yeah. it, right? It. And eventually the French got it. Okay. Uh, and so the European community, the Germans, the British, the Americans, mm -hmm. the Indians, I think the Chinese also, everybody's putting money into this mm -hmm. 15 billion euro machine, about 20-odd billion dollars. And, you know, I think it's the wrong thing to put all your eggs in one basket mm -hmm. into a very expensive machine that probably no utility would want to build if it worked. Mm -hmm. This is not a very good bet. Plasma physics, which I studied here at Berkeley, is extremely difficult. I think we should be spending a lot more money on the basic science because it has lots of collateral benefits in many different disciplines, whether you talk photovoltaics or thin film deposition or nanomaterial, whatever. And fusion could be one of them. Uh, we should be aiming to think about um, P-lithium reactions, which is hydrogen with lithium. Abundant materials, you only get charged particles. You're not boiling water to make energy. You don't have any waste heat. Now, that would be like a fusion battery, except it would be pretty big, and you have temperatures hotter than the inside of the sun. But so hard to do, very hard to do, but worthwhile doing. So if it takes you 100 years to do it, and today we do wind and solar, and 50, 60 years from now we say, really, you know, I want that desert back, you could get it back. And um, so really worth doing. So... We don't need to look to one energy transformation. We can go to better and better energy systems, and today we could go to the good energy system. So fusion could help with that, but, but we've got this, this fascination with big, expensive machines before we know what we're doing. And mm -hmm. It's a little unfortunate. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Arjun Makajani, uh, who is uh, the president of the Institute for Energy and Environmental 
research, and we've been talking about his book, Carbon Free and Nuclear Free, A Roadmap for U.S. Energy Policy. And uh, now we're going to talk about something that interests me at least as much, which is a little pamphlet that you wrote called Ecology and Genetics, an Essay on the Nature of Life and the Problem of Genetic Engineering. And the reason it interests me so much is that for the last 10 years, through the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, which is a partnership of about 4,000 colleagues around the world who are interested in the environment and health, uh, my colleague Ted Shetler, uh, who's here with us today, uh, who's uh, the science director for the Collaborative on Health and the, in uh, health and the Environment, um, has been developing the paradigm of uh, the ecological paradigm of health. And um, what you have written, Arjun, and, and you and Ted and I uh, talked about this earlier, is such a beautiful contribution uh, to this paradigm of the ecological concept of health, which we've come to believe is, is central to um, understanding how health and the environment interact and understanding how we move toward a healthier and more sustainable world. So just as a starting point, um, you said to me, over lunch, if I heard you right, that you've come to regard ecology as the, the fundamental science. Yeah. Could you say more about that? Yeah, because, you know... I mean, here you are, a physics. nuclear physicist, saying that ecology is the fundamental <laughs> science. Plasma physicist, yeah. yeah. The, the, um, well, you know, I, I come at this culturally from India, mm -hmm. where I was born and brought up. And um, there's a certain side to Western science that looks less like science and more like a battle between the scientists and the Pope. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as to who's going to be top dog. And uh, whether we can go to heaven here or later. I mean, and this is, this is an argument that's interesting sociologically, but it's not interesting scientifically. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, at least to me, the, the, so in the physicist's mind, there's a kind of, in the ultimate physicist's mind, there's a kind of a God particle, a God equation, something Which they that still can, haven't found, yeah, by the way, right? Which can forecast everything. Right. And actually everything we know about physics since the right. last hundred years, since quantum mechanics, right. should lead you to the conclusion, and even really with, in the Newtonian era, should lead you to the conclusion that you can't do that. Right. You can't go there. You, it won't work. Uh, and thermodynamics is really, among the physical sciences, thermodynamics actually the most solid, in my opinion. Uh, also in Einstein's opinion, so I'm in very good company there. The, um, so if you look at what science consists of, and physics is sort of the paradigm for sciences, science consists of observations. And quantum mechanics says, that the obs observing instrument is disturbing the things to be observed. That's where the uncertainty principle comes from. So you can't really observe the thing as it is because you need to measure it. 
And when you measure it, you're disturbing it, even by shining a light on it, for example. Radiation pressure. Uh, photons striking it. I took it one step farther, and I said, in an observation, there must be an observer and the observed. And while the observed can be dead, like this cup or that book, the observer must be alive. If you're alive, you have a point of view. You are a subject, not an object. As an observer, you are a subject. So in, subject is fundamental to observation and therefore fundamental to the empirical part of science. Of course, all great science also depends on these intuition and selecting the facts and stringing particular facts together in these brilliant Maxwell's equations or E equal MC square or what have you. And so we don't like to acknowledge the presence of the subject in physics. Physicists don't. I'm perfectly comfortable with it. And that's because I think it's because of this battle with the Pope. And maybe a jaundiced view, but that's how I think about it. So I think of ecology as much more fundamental because in ecology, all the participants are always observing each other. And they always have a point of view. And their point of view has to be accurate or they will die. Right? So you have, you bring a system to your, of needs to your observation. And if you are true in your needs to your biology, then you'll make a good observation. Of course, you can be fooled. And that's what toxics are doing to us, you know. That's why creatures, and that's what Rachel Carson, you know, started us thinking along those lines, that, that you can, biology can be fooled, ecology can be fooled, and, 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 and we are the fools, you know, basically doing that. But I think of ecology as a much more fundamental science because it has that complexity. It shows the object and the subject. It shows the, it's about relationships. So discovering things is not about things. Essences are, so science can discover the essence about something, but essences are relationships. They are not things. So in, in this book, Ecology and Genetics, um, if we just take some of the key steps in your argument, uh, the first chapter is called The Ecosystem in Us. Uh, this is something Ted Shetler talks about too, that, that we, we, we are an ecosystem. Not only are we in an ecosystem, but we are an ecosystem yeah. internally. Yeah. Um, the second chapter is called Incorporation and Excorporation and basically deals with how uh, intimately attuned each <coughs> organism has to be to the ecosystem that created it. And then the third chapter is called Modes of Expression. If the genome of any species is an expression of the ecosystem it needs, then there must be specific ways in which aspects of the ecosystem that the species experienced get expressed within the genetic structure of the species. And you give the example of hemoglobin as the internal ex expression of oxygen. And then in the, uh, the fourth chapter, Reproduction of the Ecosystem, uh, you say ecosystems tend to be actively reproduced by the living beings within them, and the collective acts of any species must systematically contribute to the reproduction of the ecosystem the species needs, and that global symbiosis 
In other words, that all the species together have to create the global ecosystem that they need. Right. I just wanted to kind of put the argument on the table. Yeah, actually, you know, it, where it started was actually watching a jaguar uh, video with the kids and thinking, so where did the spots come from, you know? And um, so the spots obviously come from the genetics, but the camouflages are the external photons. And you can't get an accidental match. So there must be some way in which the genetics is expressing. So, and you know, hemoglobin is created in the body by a certain genetic structure and it catches this oxygen extremely efficiently and that can't be an accident. So, there's, so the, the genetic structure has got to express the environment or ecosystem that we need. And, and you know, this is of course hats off to James Lovelock for, for having explored this and set it forth and other people. Not in the Gaia yeah, hypothesis. In the Gaia hypothesis. And, uh, but basically, you can think of the Gaia hypothesis a different way. You can ask, is oxygen dead or alive? And I will say that you can't actually say oxygen is dead or oxygen is alive. Mm -hmm. When it is an atom or a molecule of air as O2 outside of me, it is dead. It doesn't have the attributes of reproduction and so on, other attributes of life, what Schrodinger talks about. But if I breathe it in and it's part of me then and my blood, then it is alive because it's part of my hemoglobin and, and, and definitely part of the living being that I am. And similarly, food is food, you know, we are what we eat, and then we are no longer what we eat when we excrete it. So mm -hmm. there are all these flows of the environment through us and then back through the environment. And I think if we, if we think of ourselves as kind of not vessels for the environment, but pipes mm -hmm. for the environment, like our alimentary canal, then we might be more respectful of, of other species, mm -hmm. other living beings, because... You know, in nature, there's no waste, but we've kind of created this awful thing. Ted Shetler, I'd like to ask you, you've just recently been introduced to Arjun in this, and we've just talked a little about his, uh, his essay on ecology and genetics, but how do you see this uh, intersecting with the thinking you've been doing on the ecological paradigm of health? Well, I think Arjun used a couple of words just now that I think are central to this uh, a different framework, and that is that uh, ecology is about relationships. It's not about things. Um, and implicit in what you said uh, was this notion of hierarchy and nesting. Um, you know, ecologists use the term hierarchy in a way that's different from the way most of us learn to use it. It sort of implies domination and control to many people. That's not the way an ecologist uses the term. Hierarchy here means, uh, is, is just sensitive to the fact that there's a nesting of, of and, and in my thinking, I start thinking, well, at the cellular level, the cells are nested within tissues, within organs, within an individual, within a family, a community, a population, and an ecosystem. There's a, 
there's an enormously interesting conversation that's going on across all of those levels, from the ecosystem to the cell, from the family to the individual, and in the other direction. So it's truly a dialectic conversation that's going on, um, which incorporates so many of the ideas that you describe in your, your pamphlet uh, about, the, about the effect of the uh, individual on the ecosystem at the same time that the ecosystem is having an effect on the individual. And I've just found this useful um, because... I think in medicine, we've bumped up against some barriers that uh, are not easily penetrated and are really resistant to understanding. And so I've started to wonder if bringing the, the systems like thinking of ecology to some of the more knotty problems in medicine might be useful. Um, and I'm, I'm actually finding it useful so far. I mean, you have to be a little bit careful not to just get cute with metaphors. Right. But, uh, but to the extent that they uh, open up a new sort of way of looking and thinking and studying, doing research, and then responding um, in ways that are useful, I think it's worth exploring this. So, uh, so I, I see a lot of what Arjun has written in this pamphlet as, as being entirely complementary and mm -hmm. consistent with, with the kind of thinking we've been doing. Arjun, in the last four or five minutes that we, we have uh, before we go to questions, um, in response to what Ted said about the value of this approach that you've developed and that Ted has developed and others have developed uh, to thinking ecologically about health and the environment, if you were to imagine the, say, the three principal things that we need to do to move this understanding forward uh, in the scientific community and the popular mind, what would, you, what would you suggest are the major directions that we need to take to create in depth um, a way of integrating ecological thinking into health and environmental thinking in depth? You know, uh, as, as you know, we've just started this conversation, so I'm, um, I'm just going to, this sort of brainstorming mode. Um, one is, if, if what I postulate here is correct, that genetic structure of any living being is an internal expression of the ecosystem that that living being needs. Then uh, you can think of health and ill health in that way, in that expression of genes affected by food, you know, you, you eat more meat, you get taller, for example. Your, your genes themselves don't necessarily change, but the expression of it is different. If we learn to think of ecology and ecosystems, even beyond relationships, of something that we actually, we're actually incorporating our environment. It is us. And then it is no longer us. So we're kind of giving the environment life in us. And then when we no longer need it, but we're going to need it again tomorrow. It's going to come back. That carbon dioxide is going to become oxygen, and oxygen, then it'll come back. So if we realize this you know, a lot of people have used the fouling your own nest in terms of environmental pollution. 
But I think it's more profound than just following the nest. We're following our beings because we're incorporating our environment. Maybe that might produce a different kind of environmental consciousness because now environmental is just regarded as somehow this thing, you know, it's, it's an issue. It's, <laughs> it's not as a central, uh, central aspect of life itself, which is, you know, we could say the Lovelockian view. And how to personalize that and to make it operational in society, politics, economics, I would say sort of is a very important problem. And, and the second thing, you know, recently is this food as medicine has really grabbed me a great deal, both in my personal life and from the other things that we're observing, is, is the, the idea that we need to go from the parts to the whole in science needs to be complemented. That's very useful and has brought us quite far, but needs to be complemented by going from the whole to the parts, too, because you can't really... If you, if you just study the liver by itself, I would postulate that if you took a doctor out of the context of any medical understanding and gave them a liver, they might have a hard time with it, understanding it. We understand the liver because it's in the context of something, or the kidneys, or the stomach, or whatever. And, but yet we don't incorporate that understanding into science, and we need to do that. And, and how to introduce that into politics, I think, and common understanding and how we understand our relationship to ecosystems that we need, I think that should be the paradigm, is we need these ecosystems. It's not just, you know, going for a vacation on a clean beach or something, mm. or watching birds, mm. which is very nice, but... Arjun Makajali, uh, the president of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Research, www.ieer.org, and the author of many books, including Carbon Free and Nuclear Free, A Roadmap for U.S. Energy Policy, and a lovely pamphlet, Ecology and Genetics, an essay on the nature of life and the problem of genetic engineering. Thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank you for asking me, Michael. Great. Really appreciate it. Yeah. So let's open it up. Our colleague Steve Heilig from San Francisco Medical Society is here, another partner with the Collaborative on Health and the Environment. And Steve, let me, I know you're going to have to leave soon, but did, as you listen, do you have any reflections or thoughts? You actually very kindly participated on one of our conference calls for the yes. Collaborative on Health and Right. Was the moderator on that? You never mentioned. Oh, you thank before, you. So it's nice to see it with all your thumb you. there, you know. And uh, subsequent to that, um, and this is back on the. This was a, a call we did. It's on the CHE website, and it's uh, related to. It was a post Fukushima about back on the first issue about nuclear energy and safety. Um, I posted a discussion about that, a link to that, and some other issues related to that on my uh, Huffington Post blog. And the way that played out was very interesting to me because it, that, that one got more comments than anything I think I've ever done. Last time I checked, it was like 400 or something like that. And it became a generational fight. And that's kind of what, what, uh, uh, what triggered it, going back to the issue of what's more crucial, the climate issue and, or the safety issue of nuclear energy. And it was partly triggered by some younger folks that made me feel like uh, what Michael referred to as an old hippie. 
um, by having this concern, and I was, you know, glad to be able to link and quote from the some of the comments that you and our other speakers made on that call. But I think a real issue we have to think about <coughs> is the translational issue of some of this concept, the modernization of the nuclear safety issue to younger people who don't really recall the earlier issues and are more focused, if they are focused at all on these kind of things, on the climate issue and think that that trumps everything and we have to do, that changes the entire equation in that we have to do whatever we can. So I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on how do we keep these concerns in a contemporary way and they were posing it as millennials, as they called themselves. You know, there's all these right. generational issues now, yes. or, or labels for different generations. But have you encountered this, for one thing, and do you have any thoughts on it? I, I actually haven't encountered it much because, I mean, I'm talking a lot about safety because Fukushima is staring us in the face. Normally, if you look at my writings, even if you look at carbon-free, nuclear-free, um, my prior writings on, on energy, you won't find a lot about safety. Uh, it's not that I don't know that nuclear reactors can happen. Obviously, I've written about safety and the catastrophic potential of accidents. It's because I don't think that that's the most important point of comparison between nuclear power and, and fossil fuels. Uh, for fossil fuels, you've got two giant problems. You have the routine pollution problems, the respiratory diseases, the socks, the NOx, the particulates, the ozone, the, you know, the large numbers of people get sick, the miners, and mercury, and all that. So the routine problems from fossil fuels are themselves cumulatively pretty catastrophic. And so I'm totally on board with that. Uh, and then on top of that, we've got the climate problem, which could be globally catastrophic. And I do think that climate is probably the worst environmental catastrophe, and it's not com comparable to any other environmental catastrophe, including nuclear accidents. The, obviously, I mean, what we're staring at in terms of climate is, 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 a, is, is different environmentally than any other thing that we've faced, in my opinion, and, and I'm not alone, obviously. My, my problem with nuclear power at the core is twofold. One is, what do we want? Where does it play a role in climate? The problem of climate is not a shortage of low CO2 sources of energy. And I readily grant nuclear is a low CO2 source of energy. I don't have a problem with that at all. The, in climate, we have a shortage of time and money. Those are the two commodities in short supply. And the young people who object to this, I don't think safety is that. So if you look at this country and say, so how many nuclear reactors do you think you're going to build in the next 10 years? And the answer is what? Two? Three? It used to be eight. Now it is probably closer to two. And even the company that's building the two said, if I'd known what I know now four years ago, I'd have ordered a gas plant. Okay. So much for that. The... the Wind energy with compressed air storage, 50 grams CO2 per kilowatt hour, very comparable to solar or wind or nuclear, um, is cheaper. So per dollar, you can get faster, better, quicker phase out of fossil fuels than we can get with nuclear. 
So that's one thing. The other thing is, does it make sense to make plutonium just to boil water? If we were to address the climate problem seriously, partly, not fully, just partly, throw in wind and solar, but say nuclear play a big role, you'd have to build, ooh, my phone came on. I must be fiddling with my switch. I think I was, yes. The, the, um, if we were to build, play a serious role with nuclear power and climate, you'd have to build about 3,000, 4,000 nuclear reactors in the next 40 years. Say you built 3,000. You'd be making 90,000 bombs worth of plutonium in the reactors every single year. Of course, you've got to separate the plutonium. So the risk of losing a city every now and then. So do we live in a society? So a few years ago, so I quoted this in my book. A few years ago, uh, the Gulf Cooperation Council said they were going to do peaceful, the peaceful atom. So how real is the peaceful atom? What did Oppenheimer say in 1946 when the United States was going to sign a nuclear weapons convention? He said, well, you know, if we sign a nuclear weapons convention, we'd always be afraid that others are going to cheat. So he wanted the U.S. to preemptively cheat. The, he said we would build these plants and we would call them power plants, but they would be built in such a way that we could rapidly convert them to making the maximum number of bombs. So here you have a technology. So do we want to exchange the problem of CO2 for the problem of nuclear bombs? at high cost when we could do the CO2 problem much cheaper. That's my main framework. The, and the nuclear waste problem is actually a problem of fissile materials because the waste contains the plutonium or the uranium-233. That's my problem with it. You bury the nuclear waste in Yucca Mountain, it's not going to have an environmental effect that's anywhere comparable to even air pollution in cities. Uh, but plutonium separated, we've got 250 tons of surplus plutonium already in the commercial sector worldwide, including in France. And Fukushima actually does bring the safety issue. If you can avoid losing 1,000 square miles or 1,000 square kilometers every 30 years, you know, for generations far into the future, do you really want to do that? What do these young people know about going to a renewable energy future instead of using nuclear energy. You know, it's not about hippies or not hippies, or generation X, Y, or Z, or A, B, or C. I mean, you know, I'm generation, you know, something. I, I don't know what generation I am. I, I was born in 1945 in Karachi and grew up in Bombay, so I have no idea what generation I belong to. I'm, I'm not a boomer. Uh, because I'm not a boomer because my, yeah yeah I'm I'm not a boomer because well, our folks didn't go off to World War II or some of them did anyway uh, they were always booming over there you know for a while. <laughs> so and actually the boomers did start boom population boom in India started after independence in 1947 got a question right here yes I wonder how much influence do you think you have on tax credits and loan guarantees for wind energy? Well, um, I think production tax credits have had a significant impact. I don't think loan guarantees have an impact on wind energy. I think wind energy can be financed quite well and is being financed quite well on, on Wall Street. Maybe on some solar um, 
the tax credits have had um, an impact. I personally am not in the subsidy mode of doing energy. So you won't find me encouraging subsidies and carbon-free, nuclear-free as one of the policies. I, I think if the government just put its own house in order and became carbon neutral uh, by becoming more efficient and renewable for its own energy needs, it's such a big market that we should not have a need for subsidies. Now, I, I have solar PV on my house, but it's really a regressive subsidy you know, from renters and people who don't own houses and, you know, uh, people who can't afford to put out a bunch of cash. So I think if you're going to put solar PV, we should do it on schools, we should do it on universities where the taxpayer gets a bang for their buck. Now, now how do you compare the U.S. to, like, Scotland with their promotion of wind energy and solar? Well, the Scots are smart, and the Norwegians are smart, too. What they're doing, you know, the Scots have offshore oil, and uh, the Norwegians have offshore oil too, all in the North Sea. And so they've got an extensive offshore oil infrastructure. They've got the boats, they've got the experienced workers, you know, highly skilled to be able to go and build those platforms and work on them and staff them. So what they are doing, the Norwegians, for example, they are uh, developing a deep sea wind turbine that you can put out in the middle where, you know, the rich people don't have to look at the view. Only the sailors can pass by it. And, uh, the, the, um, so I think they're, they're in the process of thinking through how can we convert our offshore oil infrastructure into offshore wind infrastructure. And I think that's a smart way to think. I think the Texans are beginning to do it act too. Actually, the Texans are in some ways very smart about renewable energy. They have more wind energy than anybody else. They are developing offshore wind energy. This offshore wind energy argument here aggravates me a great deal. It really does. Can I say something yes, about please, that? Yes, please, please. So Anything had, that aggravates you, we want to hear about. <laughs> so we've got this, you know, I don't like the view argument. Yeah. Okay. So my friend Helen Caldecott says we're in intensive care. We're in intensive care. You've got to get out of intensive care. And you do some pretty awful things to yourself. Yeah. Not gratuitously, but because you're in intensive care. Yeah. Forget how you wound up there. We, we know how we wound up right. there. Uh, sort of. Now, so now we have some choices to get out of intensive care. We can't burn fossil fuels. That's out. Because we can't do carbon sequestration out of the tail tailpipes of cars and stuff anyway. The, you can kick plutonium down the road to your kids which I don't like. That's my main problem with nuclear energy. I don't want to kick plutonium down the road and forget about these transmutation schemes. I've written so much about all these. They, they won't work. They won't work, at least give you any bang for the buck. The, you can go off-grid, which is very expensive. You can freeze in the dark, or you can look at the view. Those are the choices. Now, I say if my kids don't like the view, you know, they can do P-lithium fusion and have a nice nuclear battery, very large, but much more compact than, you know, offshore wind. They can do it. But for now, let's do offshore. That's part of the answer to what you do, you know, the wind not being near the population. You do offshore, and it's very close to the population, east coast, west coast, gulf coast. Most of the people live in these areas, Great Lakes. You can't do it on all the Great Lakes because of the ice problem, but, but you can do it in Michigan. Yes. 
In terms of energy and politics, do you know Obama's science advisor, and what do you think of uh, the advice he's giving? <laughs> I, I know John Aldrin very well. Uh, did you know that I know him? Did you, that, was that a planted question? Wasn't it? Okay, he and you grew up together. So John is a wonderful man. I admire him. I, I met him about 15 years ago, and I told him, that the only difference between his career and mine was that he talks to presidents and I talk to peasants. And uh, that if he wanted people to really listen to him, he should come to my side. And, <laughs> and he obviously rejected my advice. <laughs> and, you know, I, it's very tragic. I think, I think President Obama has got somebody right there in the White House that knows an enormous amount of energy. He's, he's extremely talented. He's very informed. He's, he's very, very good. And, but I don't believe that anybody, I don't know whether he's even being asked for energy advice. The, 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 there's no evidence. He may be asked, but there's no public evidence that John is playing a role in energy policy. Maybe he is, and you know, a lot of these things happen quietly. Uh, but I, not from John, but I know from other sources in Washington, and I have permission to quote, but um, that the Obama administration basically punted energy policy to Congress with disastrous consequences, obviously. Hmm. Yeah. Other questions? Yes. Um, at the very beginning of your talk, you said we haven't learned the lessons. That, that's one of the things that struck you of the nuclear from the past. Is there anything you can think of that would change that so that we do start to learn the lessons? Well, you know, President Truman is supposed to have said that the most sensitive nerve in the human anatomy runs through the pocketbook. And that's why I often call him the greatest ph physiological scientist of the 20th century. And <laughs> I actually think he was a little bit Mm, wrong and being understated in that I think we've rerouted our entire nervous systems through the pocketbook. And so literally, you know, and this is part of urban living is I'm not exempt. The, the, we don't, when I lived in, and worked in rural areas in India and got to know tribal people there, I mean, they could see things that I couldn't see. They could hear things that I could. So we literally actually urbanized ourselves into losing our senses. And then we've rerouted the nervous system and we're all so hyper about the pocketbook. And I think we are very resistant to learning lessons when it comes to power and money. It's chairs in Washington seem to have vapors that go upward and occupy the brain. That's the only explanation I have. It's, it's, it's good people get into chairs and then funny things happen. Uh, it's, nobody wants to leave that office. and It's just, it, so I don't have a ready answer for really how you're going to learn because it's not that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission doesn't know what lessons there are to learn. Um, it, it's, I mean, they had their own staff give them a report on July 12th. I mean, I've got some problems with it, and I think it didn't go far enough, and I've made some criticism of it. But I think also in the things that it said, it's a very good report. It made some very sensible recommendations if you really want a safer or less risky nuclear system. 
And it also said, well, we had Three Mile Island and the NRC Rogovin Commission said that you shouldn't um, have the attitude that, you should discard the attitude that some accidents are so remote that you can not worry, that you shouldn't worry about them, that we should have a better regulatory system, more thorough, not leave so much to voluntary. And the chairman of the NRC said, okay, let's get it done. And the majority of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission said no. And as soon as the report came out, there was an outcry in Congress saying, you know, too much regulation. We're in a situation where we don't agree on whether government has a legitimate function in ensuring the safety of the public and ensuring that private enterprise shall conduct itself so we're not toxifying ourselves or accidenting ourselves to death. And it's just, it's just a mysterious thing to watch going on in Washington. And so I think it's becoming more and more difficult to learn the lessons, even though we know what the lessons are. Forget the lessons that we haven't kind of, you know, we don't know what we don't know. That's a separate philosophical problem. One final question. Anybody got one? Yes. Uh, you talked a little bit about uh, systems and ecology's system, and it's just, I took a little systems theory when I was in, in school, and I always thought of myself as kind of a systems engineer, but a system can't survive if what's being optimized is the individuals, and yes. the indiv satisfying the needs of the individuals within the system, like the organs in the body. I mean, that, that's cancer. When they, when they grow wild and try to optimize themselves. Second thing I wanted to say is that if you approach this energy problem, which is just really a subset or a sub-problem of the bigger problems that we're facing today, I think, if you approach it as one in which how can we meet the demand, then you're, you're bound to not come up with the answer that we need because it's the demand itself which is the problem. And it's growing exponentially. And what we know about exponential growth is you can't continue that way. And one other thing along that is when I, I did a little reading, I was reading something about Africa, and they were doing, it was an analysis about what does Africa really needed. And the conclusion was what Africa really needs to solve its problems is nuclear energy. There's yeah. nothing else that's going to work there. And so any solution you, you you talk about it, you've got to put it in the context of the bigger problem. Like, what's Africa in 30, you talk about a solution for 40 years. In 20 years, Africa's going to have 500 million people or 500, 600 million people that don't even have energy. You know, Africa's so already got 500 million people. The solution's going to be a lot different than what ours is going to be. You know, it's on totally different levels, and I don't think we can, <coughs> the world can continue to exist with those kind of disparities. Well, you've raised a lot of issues. So, yeah. It's a very uh, complicated question. Yeah. I, I won't address all of the issues, obviously. I can't. I can't. Yeah. But um, I, I give you a short answer to the first part of your question. There's two parts to this uh, sort of exponential growth question in terms of materials and energy. One is uh, we should use them a lot more efficiently. I mean, the light bulb, incandescent bulb, converts 1% of the energy into coal, into light. That's appallingly horrible. We convert 1% of the energy in petroleum into movement of people in a car. I mean, that's 
that's, that's, a, that's an absurd level of efficiency. So a lot of what I wrote about is a technical approach to improving efficiency and supplying the rest with renewables. I do recognize that in my book that I'm not addressing the values question. And uh, that was because I set out to answer a very limit, limited set of questions to a very limited audience. Can we get this done technically? Uh, not seeking to settle all arguments in one book. Initially, I wanted to write a bigger book, and my advisory board said, don't be a fool. Just write a short book. Do a doable project. And so I decided not to be a fool and listen to my advisory board. The, the question of values, I think, is more important for materials than it is for energy. Because renewable energy is very plentiful and can use energy very efficiently and you can actually use a lot of it. The damage comes in the mining, the disrupting, where, you know, where, where we really, that, that's a part that, that's very, very difficult. And I think if we don't have a notion of enough in society that we should still ruin the earth, if you read my book very carefully, you will not find the word sustainable in there for this very reason. Is because people say, why don't you say sustainable energy? And I said, I'm not going to say this because I'm not addressing this other piece in this book. Mm. And we, we need a notion of enough. Obviously, there are, the majority of people in the world need more. And we can do with less and Middle class can probably use the materials we have more wisely and enjoy them more than we do, you know. And I think that's a, I think we can live well, uh, but we have to do it differently. Arjun, thank you so much for being with us. I hope the next time we talk, we can talk about the global economy and monetary systems, which you yeah. also yeah. thought about. But in terms of covering what we could this time, I decided to leave that for the next conversation. Yeah, I'll so. send you my book, Wonderful. Manifesto for Global Democracy. Wonderful. Thank yeah. you so much.